Hey, well, good morning. Um, as Pastor Janice mentioned, my name is Jeff. I'm the assistant pastor around here. That means my job description is do whatever Pastor Joe tells me to do, and that is a good thing. So, um, by the way, Vineyard Student Ministries, pick up your kids between 8 and 8.15. Um, that's, that's when we'll wrap up. Doors close at 8.15, and they're on their own. Um, no, but anyway, so I'm, I'm very excited to share with you. I'm just getting used to the fact that we are, we are done with Psalm Songs, which was like our longest sermon series ever. Uh, I think this year's sermon, uh, Psalm Songs is the longest ever. So I'm getting used to the fact that you just come straight up and you don't have a, a song that's, that's going on right now. But anyway, all that said, um, we're, we're not in a series anymore which means that when you get assigned to preach and then you remember a week before uh, and, and you, you do all your prep, um, you get to kind of go where you feel like the Lord's saying to go. You don't have a text that's assigned to you. You don't have a, a topic that's going on. So you kind of get to uh, share a little bit more personally. And just so you know, I'm going to give you some inside baseball into my life. Uh, lately, where, where the Lord has had me in my time reading the scriptures, um, I've, I've just been fixated on three passages. Um, they're passages I've heard mentioned either in passing or deliberately at like vineyard conference or things I hear in a podcast or things that I just need to, to marinate on a little bit more. Um, and so one of those is, is what I want to share with you today. But before I get to that, uh, a lot of times when you're doing a sermon prep, uh, you get to go down some sort of rabbit hole along the way. I remember a couple weeks ago, Pastor Janice was preaching and she was talking about David and Goliath and she was, was mentioning around the staff that she had watched like a 30 minute long YouTube video about what happens when you stand inside the Valley of Elah and shout up or what happens when you shout across the Valley of Elah. You just go down rabbit holes when you, when you get to uh, prepare messages and stuff like that. So this week, my rabbit hole, um, and I don't know if you need like a, a childhood memory warning or, or what, but my rabbit hole was Sunday school and camp songs, okay? Um, I, w I just got to thinking about them because the passage I want to share with you relates to uh, one of those songs, and, um, but before we do that, let's go down memory lane. Please don't let me sing up here by myself, okay? But I was thinking about songs like, uh, I am a C, I am a C-H, I am a C-H-R-I-S-E-I-A-N, and I have C-H-R-I-S-C in my H-E-A-R-T, and I will L-I-V-E-E-T-E-R-N-L-L-Y. It's a mouthful. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> or um, like, I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Thank you, down in my heart. <laughs> or as we go. But uh, some of those songs, you know, I remember very well and very vividly. Some of them I don't remember. But the one that kind of peaks the chart for me um, the one that I cannot go to the text and not think about the song, kind of to my chagrin, to be honest, because it's a little bit silly and it's a little bit obnoxious, but uh, this, is, this is our last one for today, okay? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. He climbed into a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed his way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down. From going to your house today, from going to your house today, okay? Are we all like traumatized by our childhood at this point, or are we good? Okay, I just, I want to go there, because one of the passages that I've been thinking about, I've been thinking about the verse at the end of Luke 19, or, or um, in, in the middle, 
at the end of a passage in Luke 19, if you will, uh, verse 10, where, he, where Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So I've been reading that story uh, time and time again. Uh, but I want to go there and I want to read it with you. And I, my goal for us today is to try to separate out from the song and try to actually see what's really going on as we read that. So take your Bible, take your, uh, your, your smartphone, whatever it is that you uh, use to read the Bible. My Bible has this nifty little thing where I can just kind of do this number and I'm where I wanted to be, which is, you know, score one in the column of, of actual physical Bibles. But all the same, we will put it on the, up on the screen for you, no matter what you have. If you don't have anything, you can read along. But Luke 19, 1 through 10 is where we're going to be today. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him. Since Jesus, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house tonight. So he came down and at once welcomed, he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So before we kind of get into it, I just want to kind of set the stage for you. I want to let you know what's been going on, where Jesus is, and stuff like that. So right at the beginning of the story, we, we read that Jesus entered into Jericho. Uh, in Luke 17, you read that Jesus was traveling along the border of Samaria and Galilee. So you see that map there. Um, the Galilee is up there in the red. Samaria is just below it in the green. Jesus is kind of somewhere in between there along the border. And he's headed for Jerusalem, which is all the way there towards the bottom with the, with the box and everything. And Jericho is that red reddish box and, and, and red uh, dot that you see there. So that's where Jesus is entering into right now. Um, towards, towards the end of Luke 18, Jesus indicates to the 12 that they're going into Jerusalem. At the end of Luke 18, they are approaching Jericho when Jesus heals a blind man. So they're on their way. And then here in, in, verse, in chapter 19, they actually get into Jericho. So he gets to Jericho, he and the disciples, they're passing through. And then Luke decides to tell us a couple of facts about this man called Zacchaeus. We learn three things about Zacchaeus. One, he's a chief tax collector. Two, he's wealthy. And three, he's short. And that's, you know, my problem with the song is just that you kind of fixate on the whole, like, <laughs> Zacchaeus was short. But like, you know, what's actually going on here? But so down the line of, of what Luke tells us, there, there's tax collectors and then there's chief tax collectors. And I don't know if you know the difference, but I was looking some of this stuff up. And if you've been in church for any amount of time and you've heard sermons out of the Gospels, you probably know that most people weren't big fans of tax collectors in general. They just kind of came along and there were so many Roman taxes that they could tax for just about anything and everything. And you couldn't really ask many questions about it. But there was a chief tax collector over them, also known as a uh, publicanus. It's, it's someone who is usually a wealthy person. And what they actually do is they pay for the rights 
to collect taxes. They pay the Roman government for the right to collect taxes. And then once they have that right, they then hire out tax collectors who then go and actually uh, collect the tax from people. So if you want to think about it this way, it's, it's basically a pyramid scheme, right? You pay some money up front, you hire some people, they go take money, they get some money, they give you some money, and everybody's happy except for the people at the bottom rung of the ladder. Okay, it's very, very passive income, very, very good income. This is the person Zacchaeus was. This was his profession. This was his identifier in Scripture that, that, we, that we learn about here. And if you can imagine how much people disliked tax collectors, just imagine how much they disliked the chief tax collectors who didn't have to get personal, who didn't have to talk to them, who got a cut of the money that they gave to the tax collector. Okay, They, they just weren't big fans of tax collectors, let alone chief tax collectors. Then Luke mentions Zacchaeus is wealthy. Go figure, that one kind of goes without saying. When you're wealthy enough to pay for the right to collect taxes, then pay people to collect taxes who then pay you, right? It stands to reason he would be wealthy. And then Luke mentions that he's short. And uh, I I did a little bit of cursory investigation on the internet, uh, and I found out that the average male, and I used male because Zacchaeus is one, okay, that's why I did that. Um, The average male in that region at that time would have been approximately five foot five. Okay, for reference, the average male worldwide today is about five foot seven, but I think in the U.S. it's closer to like five foot nine or ten, if I'm remembering right. Um, but that's that's about how tall the average male was. But Zacchaeus, in a crowd of average people, could not see, so he was shorter than that. Okay, don't know what's going on there, but he's pretty short. Um, it, it was, he was short enough to, to need to get out of the crowd to go see Jesus. Okay, and then Luke, Luke mentions he runs ahead, which if you've ever heard the, the story of the prodigal son uh, in Luke 15 preached about, one of the most uh, potent images in that is of the father running out to meet the son, right? And people love to explain that running in that day and age was a shameful thing. It was kind of a disgraceful thing. You had to hike up your tunic. You had to kind of show off your ankles, get a little risque, right? And then you, then you ran. You, 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 you showed that you were in a hurry. You were desperate for something. You were showing some sort of need or urgency, which is uh, equally um, um, shameful. And so this is what Zacchaeus does. Now, there's a crowd. And I just want to pause and talk about crowds for a second. This crowd presumably was was made up of any number of people. It could have been some of the people that were traveling with Jesus from Galilee down to Jerusalem. Uh, We we also find out that there was a crowd of people that gathered and, and went with him after he healed the blind man in Luke chapter 18. And then, of course, there's the fact that Jericho is a city. And cities have high populations, and as you're entering into the city, there's going to be a lot of people there. So this crowd is amassed of any number of people who are there for any number of reasons, okay? So we get into this crowd, and and I think crowds are interesting. I've been thinking a lot about crowds recently, and like numbers and size and that sort of thing. And, And it's interesting the Bible's relationship with crowds, okay? If you go to BibleGateway.com and you type the word crowd into the search bar, you are going to find 154 New Testament uses of the word crowd, okay? Those, those 154 uses are all across five books, the four Gospels, and the book of Acts. So if you do the math, 154 divided by five is 30.8 uses of the word crowd in the New Testament, in, in the Gospels and the book of Acts. There's just something about Jesus and crowds, 
Okay? Crowds formed around Jesus. Jesus preached to crowds. Jesus taught crowds. Jesus fed crowds. Jesus healed crowds. Okay? So if you think that Jesus is anti-crowd, you're wrong. Okay? Because there is something about Jesus and crowds. People flocked to Jesus, and he treated them uh, accordingly in that. He didn't say, no, 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 you don't need to be gathering right now. He embraced it most of the time. And yet, if you Google, like me, if you Google theology of crowds, because I'm just at a place right now where I would love to read a book about this or a big long article from somebody who's spent a lot of time kind of researching and thinking about the issue. Um, If you Google that, you'll find articles with titles like the spiritual danger of crowds. You'll see articles like the following Jesus against the crowd. And you'll see don't follow the crowd. And so somewhere along the line, we've gotten this this anti-crowd mentality that doesn't quite line up, I don't think, with how Jesus looks at crowds. Because Jesus seems to, 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 to like to cut through a crowd. Okay, I, I find myself thinking about the story of the woman uh, who had the issue of blood and she touched the hem of Jesus' garment and Jesus felt power going out from him. Okay, I think about the story of the, uh, the invalid at the pool of Bethesda, 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 however you say that, in John chapter 5. And of all those people with all those various illnesses and, and diseases... Of everybody gathered around there, we get the recording of one interaction that Jesus had with one person in a whole entire crowd. Or I think about this story, quite frankly, where through all the people, there is one person that we see Jesus talk to. We see Jesus talk, we see Zacchaeus talk, we hear the crowd talk, but the only person that Jesus talks to is Zacchaeus himself, which I find interesting. I think about John chapter 6, where Jesus is giving a difficult teaching about how you have to eat his flesh and you have to drink his blood. And and people got offended and people got confused and they left. And somewhere in there, Jesus was not trying to appease them so that they would stay. He didn't change his message to keep the crowd, but he wasn't trying to tick them off and to make them go. He was just doing what Jesus did. He was preaching. He was presenting the message. He was saying, this is the reality and you now have to decide what you're going to do with it. So this is the tension that we face in Christianity, okay? We want a lot of people to hear the message, right? We want as many people as would believe to believe and then to experience resurrection life in Christ. But, but the crowd itself is not our aim, okay? The goal is not just for us to get a big group of people together in the purest sense. It's not about momentum. It's not about numbers. But those can be a good thing. It's about individual transformation. At some point, the crowd is comprised of people, and that's important. So on the one hand, we don't despise a crowd, okay? We don't take on this mindset that's like, oh, no, I can't go to a place that's bigger than 100 people or bigger than 50 people or or whatever you want to call that because the crowd is still full of people, and God cares about the people. But on the other hand, we don't stop at a crowd, and we don't just say that we've done our job if we get a lot of people to show up to church. At some point or another, discipleship matters. The people in the crowd matter. I was having a conversation recently with someone. We were talking about this idea that that people go to church. You come here on a Sunday morning. You get involved in a small group. You go to events like the the men's retreat or the women's weekend that's coming up. And and part of your goal in there is to find community. Okay, but the reality of that is it's a two-way street. Okay, so so let let me put it this way. If I go to a small group and my aim is community, 
but I don't talk to anybody. I don't make a lot of effort. I don't sign up to bring anything for the meal. Um, I wait for everybody to talk to me. I don't engage when, when it's time to do the discussion. Then I'm just walking down a one-way street, and I'm just hoping that somewhere somebody's going to bump into me. But if I go to a small group, and I talk to my host, and I share in discussion, and I willingly and eagerly volunteer to bring food, um, if I make a point to talk to the people in my group and not just the same people necessarily, then you kind of put the onus on everybody else. And at that point, it's a two-way street, and you're hoping that other people will reciprocate. And we could talk all day long about you know, how, how important it is for us as the church to be welcoming people and to be bringing people in, and that is important. It has been mentioned before, and that's not the rabbit hole that I'm trying to go down right now. But hopefully you see my point. The overarching point is this. Good things don't happen by accident. Okay, they just don't. You don't get in shape by accident. You don't wake up one day 30, 40, 50 pounds lighter than you were the day before. It doesn't work like that. That's not like how the human body works. You have to put in the time. You have to put in the effort. You have to, you have to walk the miles. You have to run the miles. You have to spend the time at the gym. You have to change your, your, your nutritional habits, your diet, the, the way you sleep. All these kind of things, they work together to get you to that goal. Okay? You don't grow a garden by accident. I've been uh, fortunate enough to witness this firsthand. My wife and I were just talking about how, how many things in Scripture just make sense when you have a garden. And she does all the gardening, just to be very, very clear. But um, it's amazing to me. She started growing flowers this past year, like getting super into it. And some of you know that. But it's amazing to me just the level of planning and detail that she has to go to. Okay? She'll sit down for hours and hours, and she's got her notebook paper, and she, she's plotting out what she's going to plant, when she's going to plant it. And th this is the one that kind of blows my mind, where you're going to plant it, okay? Because, you know, to the, to the uneducated, you may not be aware that certain, certain plants need a lot of sun, certain plants don't need sun or, or don't want sun. And then some things grow taller than others, and it's important that you calculate, you know, where the sun is going to hit and how it's going to cast the shade for how long. And you don't want to shade out your, your smaller plants so that they can end up having time to grow. It, it just, it's all beyond me. But that doesn't happen by accident. You don't have an amazing garden by accident. Community doesn't happen by accident. Have you ever thought about the fact that um, from about the time you get into school, for most people, the time you get into school till about the time you graduate college, if you go, okay, your friends are kind of made for you, right? Because every day you're in the same place with the same people, in a class together, in a group together, going to recess together, whatever that is, your friends are kind of around you. So with anyone you graduate college or when you graduate high school, if you don't go to college, and that's fine, but when you graduate, you then are on your own. And just because you have coworkers at a job doesn't mean that they're going to be your friends in your community. That's something you have to kind of do on your own. It's something that you have to put effort and energy into. In the same way, following Jesus doesn't happen by accident. You can come to church and not follow Jesus. Okay? What, what happens is you, you find Jesus, you follow Jesus when you seek him. It happens when you order your life around his teachings, what he says, what he asks you to do. You don't learn what he said without spending time in the scriptures. And peace like a river doesn't tend to naturally attend your way without seeking Jesus. And I think that Zacchaeus got that idea. I think Zacchaeus got the idea that if he wants something amazing to happen, if he wants something good to happen, he's got to kind of take matters into his own hands. So there are three things out of this story I want to go down through and just kind of go through them one, two, three, 
fairly quick, um, that I think either Zacchaeus knew going in or Zacchaeus learned on the other side of this. Number one, Jesus is a seeker who rewards seekers. Okay, think about this. There's a whole crowd of people. Surely there are any number of houses that Jesus could say, I need a place to go. I have to come to your house today. But who's the one person that Jesus chose? Who's the one person that Jesus says, I must come to your house today? Jesus, the man who cut through crowds, he, he, he notices this fellow. He notices, you know, that, 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 that sight of somebody kind of cutting through the crowd, even if you can't see them. He notices somebody going up a tree and there's branches and leaves that are rustling. And so he makes it a point when he gets there to say, hey, you up there in that tree, I see you and I need to come to your house today. Now, please don't hear me say that you have to put in a lot of work for Jesus to notice you. But this is what I would say. There is something about the idea of being hungrier and hungrier for God that, Jesus, that, that he notices and that he rewards. On the other hand, if you're unrepentant for your sin, if you just think that you're God's gift to mankind, if you've never lost an argument, if nobody can confront you or correct your theology or just generally speaking your way of life because you're right, they're wrong all the time, can I just tell you quite honestly that Jesus isn't going to be able to do a lot for you? Okay, and that's not because Jesus can't. It's because you won't receive that. That's just not how it works. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, right? Or at another point in Scripture, Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And I just need you to understand that Jesus was saying that to people who thought they had it all together, who thought they were the best of the best, who thought they obeyed to a T. The question is, do you recognize you are sick? Because the crowd understood Zacchaeus was sick, okay? The crowd had no problem whatsoever saying that Zacchaeus was a bad dude, he's a sinner, Jesus is going to a sinner's house. But do you recognize your own brokenness? Do you recognize the brokenness you live with every single day? The, the selfishness, the pride, the cowardice, the deception, the greed, the anger, the jealousy, all of those things, do you see it? Do you see the way that it erodes at your relationships, that it erodes at your spiritual life, your, your mental health even? Do you see the way that it breaks you down as an individual? Do you want your sin dealt with because it's deadly, not just because it's illegal? Because if that's you, Jesus can help you. He's not going to make you perfect because Christians are still human. Okay, we still get angry. We still deal with pride. We still deal with lust. We still act selfishly. We, some of us have really, really big egos because Christians don't stop being humans. Okay, we don't stop needing change. We are people in need of change trying to help and live with other people who need change. Zacchaeus got something a lot of people don't, that Jesus is worth doing absolutely whatever it takes to see him. Jesus was, worth Zac yeah, Jesus was worth Zacchaeus shaming himself, calling attention to his stature, letting everybody know that your friendly neighborhood chief tax collector was in town. He didn't care because he wanted to see Jesus, and that is where Jesus went. You ever think about the fact that, that when, when the crowd murmurs and they say, oh, Jesus is going to stay in the house of a sinner tonight. Okay, we read that, we tend to read that through kind of a Jesus-centered lens, which is a good thing to do, okay? Don't stop doing that. But along the way, we may miss the fact that they are just having an extra jab at Zacchaeus. 
They're, they're just having another chance to say that this dude is awful, this dude is terrible, we don't like this guy. And yet Zacchaeus did it. Jesus came to seek and save lost people. And if you think about what it means to be lost, you can't be lost if you don't have a destination. Okay? Otherwise, you're just wandering. Okay? But if I hop in my car and I'm looking to drive to, I don't know, downtown Massachusetts or downtown Boston, and, and somehow I wind up in Detroit, okay, I'm lost. Right? Somewhere along the line, I took a wrong turn, I understood something incorrectly, and I wound up way away from where I was trying to go. That's the kind of people that Jesus is looking for. He's not looking for people who just want to wander. He's not looking for people who just want to be casual about it, who just, you know, whatever. He's looking for people who are looking. He wants to find people who want to find him. So if that's you, Jesus is looking for you, and I want to assure you that you can draw near to him today. You don't have to be afraid. He's not going to beat you up when you get there. He's not mad at you. He came to seek and to save the lost. Number two, Jesus stays where he's welcomed gladly. Jesus isn't forcing himself on Zacchaeus. Okay, the reality is, if you read John chapter 2, John in his gospel lays out that Jesus knows what's in a man's heart. Okay, the reality is that Jesus knew what Zacchaeus was going to do. When he said, Zacchaeus, I have to come to your house today, Jesus knew how he was going to react. The bottom line is that Jesus is into coming into places where he's welcomed. Okay, Jesus didn't do work in his hometown at one point because he said a prophet has no honor in his hometown. When Jesus sent out the disciples, he said, if somebody doesn't receive you, if somebody doesn't listen to you, I give you permission. You can shake the dust off of your feet. These are my hands, not my feet, but that's okay. Uh, you can shake the dust off of your feet when you leave that house or when you leave that town. There is something to that idea of what the Bible sometimes calls giving someone over. Okay, you'll see this uh, in Romans chapter 1, Paul lays out that, that God gave people over to their desires. Or in 1 Timothy 1.20, uh, Paul tells Timothy that he, he, um, he's handed Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan that they may not learn to that they may learn, rather, not to blaspheme. Now, I'm not here to exegete and explain what exactly it means to hand somebody over to Satan, but can we just agree that that doesn't sound very good, Okay. The reality is some people are just so stubborn, they're so hard-hearted, they're so hard-headed that there's just a place where we say, okay, I'm not going to bark up that tree anymore. There's some people who will just, they'll stand their ground in an argument and once you've kind of said your piece about the, the, the area of their, of their life or the area of their thinking or their belief that you believe is wrong, you kind of got to say, okay, you got to deal with it now. I'm not going to just, I'm not going to fight you about this. I'm not going to try to close the deal. I'm not going to try to win the argument. I'm going to tell you what scripture says, what I believe God to be saying, and you then have to wrestle with that. That's on you. Because what the gospel is, is, it's an invitation into new life and into resurrection life. It's an invitation to experience salvation worked out with fear and trembling, to be set free from sin, from addiction, and the things that are killing you and me. We get to die to sin and we get to live to God aware of his, of his power, of his presence, his grace, his will, uh, his, his forgiveness, his voice. We get to do that together in the community of believers. What it's not is a militaristic takeover. It's not God pounding on your door waiting for you to come in or to, to, to answer the door. It's not God beating you into submission. It's not God doing something really, really nice for you in order to manipulate you into doing what he wants you to do. Okay? Jesus gave 
freely. Jesus laid down his life of his own accord, knowing that there would be people who said no. Knowing that there were people that would not reciprocate that love. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And I just need you to know that that word would, it implies love, it implies desire, it implies delight. Something that a person wants to do. It's not something you're being coerced into doing. Jesus is looking to come into people's lives, metaphorically speaking, their homes, to dwell. He wants to live there. He wants to stay there. And he will go where he's welcomed. We welcome him by yielding, by submitting, and by obeying what it is that he tells us to do. Number three, when Jesus comes to your house, your life changes. Zacchaeus makes a pretty big statement to Jesus. He says, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone, which remember, chief tax collector here, he has defrauded people, okay? If I've defrauded anyone, I restore it fourfold. Now understand the language Zacchaeus was using was future tense. It's like, I will do this, I will restore, I will give. Zacchaeus was not a casual seeker of Jesus. He wasn't just a good old boy just trying to do the right thing. He didn't apathetically welcome Jesus into his house and say, yeah, I guess I got time for you. I guess I can make some time in my busy schedule for you. He eagerly welcomed Jesus into his house. And then he makes this pledge to Jesus. We don't know what Jesus and Zacchaeus talked about, but somewhere out in there, I, I would imagine that Jesus said to Zacchaeus, dude, this stuff you're doing, you got to stop. There are poor people who need to eat. There are people who are struggling to get by while you get richer. I need you to give some of that back. And that's what Zacchaeus promises to do. He, he emerges from his time with Jesus with a lot to think about and a big change to make. He's giving up a lot of his money, a lot of his goods. He's restoring for people what he's cheated and defrauded. In other words, Zacchaeus' time with Jesus resulted in a cost. When Jesus comes to your house, your life changes. And sometimes that's on you. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus does miracles, right? If you read through the Gospels, you see Jesus's life. You see Jesus do amazing things in people's lives and for them. He, he makes blind people see. He raises the dead. He casts demons out. He heals the sick. He restores people's dignity. He does all these kind of things. But there seems to be this pattern where after Jesus has said, after, after he's done something, he then says, okay, now I need you to blank. Okay? Look at John chapter 5. We mentioned this earlier. Uh, Jesus heals an invalid. And so the, the work Jesus did was to heal him. The work that the formerly invalid person had to do was to take up his bed, to walk, and then later on, when Jesus sees him in the temple, he says, now, don't go, go and don't sin anymore. Go and sin no more. In John chapter 8, you read about the woman caught in adultery, and Jesus does this amazing thing. He, he disperses her accusers. He, he kind of, um, I don't want to say lets her off the hook, but he forgives her. I don't condemn you is what he says. But then he says, now, go and sin no more. Okay, last one I'll use for you, John chapter 13. Jesus washes the disciples' feet, and then he says, now, you wash each other's feet. Jesus doesn't just show up and do stuff for us. Oftentimes, he gives us the next thing to do. The miracle is free, then we get an assignment. But the good news for you and I is this. 
We don't do it without the aid of resurrection power. In the book of Philippians, Paul tells the Philippian church that it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, God helps you to want to do it, and then God helps you to do it. And that's an amazing thing. So here's what that means for you and for me. We might, not unlike Zacchaeus, we might find ourselves having to make a really costly decision. We might have to stop engaging in some of our hobbies because of, because of how we behave while we're at it or what it makes us think of or what it tempts us to do. We might have to change the way that we spend and we save our money or our time or our resources or anything like that. We might have to lose out on some friends along the way. We might have to change the way that a relationship is going or, God forbid, end the relationship. But when Jesus comes to your house, your life has to change. It just does. That's just what happens. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing one more song. And as you can tell, there are people up here, if you're new around here, we, we, we love to encourage you to come and receive prayer. There is just something about somebody praying for you, kind of incarnating the presence of God to you, as weird as that might sound. But somebody being there on your behalf, praying for you, someone you can hear, someone you can feel, someone who can lay their hands on you. We believe in prayer around here. And I want to invite you to come and pray. Some of you have been a part of a crowd for a very long time. You come to all the right places. You do the right things. By all accounts, you are a good person. But there's just no resurrection power in your life. You aren't satisfied in your relationship with Jesus. This is, this is what I want to say. Maybe it's time for you to hike up your tunic and climb that tree. Maybe it's time for you to stop ignoring the prompting of the Holy Spirit where he's been saying, I need you to do this. You should do this. You should pray for that person. You should buy that person a meal. You should, you should do this. I, I can't imagine what that is for you. I, I can only speculate, but, but I, all I know is that that's how the Holy Spirit works. He gives you, I don't even want to call them clues. They just are facts. It's like, you need to do this. I need you to do this. And we spend a lot of time waffling on that and saying, well, maybe if I just do it this way, or maybe if I just try this, then I don't actually have to do that. And I think the Holy Spirit's saying to some of you this morning, just do it. Would you just do it, please? <laughs> You've ignored the next step. You're waiting for God to go first, and then you'll go when it's safe. But can I just tell you that around here, we believe faith is spelled R-I-S-K. And you might think we're bad at spelling, but that's a different issue, Okay. Faith is spelled risk. Faith is not waiting to know that what's going to happen, but going and trusting that God's going to take care of it. That's what faith is. Some of you have been living the Christian life out of duty because somebody took you to church a long time ago and you just think it's the right thing to do. But you don't love Jesus. There's not like an affection for God that lives inside of you. There's not a desire to obey God, to worship God inside of you. You just do it because you feel like it's the right thing to do. If that's you, I want to encourage you to come and pray. Because the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then some of you have been looking for Jesus. And today he's saying, hey, I need to stay at your house today. I got to come in. It's time for me to come in. And I need to encourage you that he's not going to beat you up. He's not waiting for you to invite him in so that he can tell you all the ways that you're terrible, all the ways that you're awful. A lot of times, if we're being honest, a lot of times we're already aware of that. 
at the time when Jesus comes in. Because that's the point, that, that, that's what brought us to that point where we said, okay, Jesus, I need you. I'm at the end of myself. I've tried everything. I keep doing this stuff. I keep going down this way and I don't want to go this way anymore. I need you to come in. Some of you are there today and it's time just to take that step. It's time just to come up and say, listen, I need to repent. I need to turn around and I need Jesus to be the Lord of my life. Because here's the bottom line. At the end of the day, Jesus is a seeker who, uh, who rewards seekers. At the end of the day, Jesus stays where he is gladly welcomed. And at the end of the day, when Jesus comes into your house, your life changes. Let's pray. God, as we come before you this morning, we just want to thank you for your word. We just want to thank you for the ways that you uh, revealed yourself to us. God, we thank you for for speaking new things into our lives. God, we thank you for, uh, for reminding us of the things that you've told us to do time and time again, but we've been hesitant. Holy Spirit, as we gather together, I just ask that you would be speaking to our hearts. Show us what it is that you need us to do. God, you have, you have done so much on our behalves, and, and we just need to respond in faith. Whatever that thing is, the, the, the assignment that you've given to us, God, we just need to do it. And some of us need boldness. Some of us need wisdom. Some of us need the courage. Some of us just need to have the person to go and talk to. God, we just ask that you would provide. We ask that you would go ahead of us in that regard and that you would help us to step out in faith. We thank you, Jesus, that you came to seek and to save the lost and that, that when we seek you with our whole heart, your word promises that, you, that we will be found, that, that we will find you. And I just want to thank you for being a God who, who rewards us when we look. And we just want more of you this morning. We want to find you. We want to see you. We want, to, we want to experience you. We want your resurrection power in our lives. We want that power that changes our hearts, that makes us into a new creation, that helps us not to go the way that we've been going. We need you this morning, God. We come and we repent and we yield and we say, God, do what you need to do. We want to obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.